We'll be having our offering after this morning's message. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And while you're turning there, I just want to stop and and think about an issue that has been on the rise in our culture, um, the issue of anxiety and fear. It surprised me. I did some research. We live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, the best medical care in the history of the world, the highest standard of living in the history of the world, and yet more and more on the rise more and more Americans, last check, 40 million adults in America have some type of anxiety disorder with prescriptions. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty is a big problem for us. You'd think that our wealth, our medicine, our, our police and, and army would provide some level of security, but it's up um, 29% actually in the last few years. Women actually two to one the rate of men. The use of psychotropic drugs by adult Americans increased 22% between 2001 and 2010, with one in five adults now taking at least one psychotropic medication. In 2010, Americans spent more than 16 billion in this industry. And not stopping there, the newest rising trend in anti-anxiety medicines are now pet medicines. <laughs> I kid you not, um, dogs are being prescribed a, a version of Xanax called Reconcile. And those, prescri- those prescriptions are going up. In other words, what Americans are more and more aware of is we are more and more aware that we are anxious, living fearfully. Perhaps none of that has to do with living on this side of 9-11. And we don't like it. And we're looking for something to offer um, solace. We're, we're looking for something to provide security. And, and I think we're looking in all the wrong places. But it's interesting, isn't it? You'd think all the things I've named before would give security, would give peace of mind. I mean, we name our, our, our investments securities, don't we? It's interesting. So it's a big issue. And Psalm 91 deals with that head-on. In fact, Psalm 91 is one of the most encouraging, uplifting psalms about the blessed security of dwelling with God in the Bible. And it really completes the theme laid out last week in Psalm 90. If you remember Psalm 90, the psalm of Moses announces that God is our dwelling place. He always has been. He always will be. But, But dwelling and living with God brings with it certain problems. He is infinite and timeless and our lives go by we're dust we're like the grass that rises in the morning and and by midday sun is scorched and withers and not only that but we're sinful and he is holy and he is aware of all of our secret sins we cannot hide from him and so in light of that in psalm 90 moses ends calling on us to ask the lord to teach us how to live in light of this and to call upon him and to cry out for salvation, to cry out in Psalm 90, verse 14, that he would satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love, to make us glad for as many days as he has afflicted us, to show us his work and then to establish the work of our hands. Well, if Psalm 90 announces that God is our dwelling place and the, the, the problems that that raises and the solution, Psalm 91 then gives the happy 
comfort and assurance to the one who learns the lesson of Psalm 90. Look at how Psalm 91 opens. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So this is a psalm written about the blessed state of the one who's learned the lesson of Psalm 90. God is his dwelling place, and he is dwelling with God. And if he, if he will respond rightly, what security, what assurance, what confidence, what peace he or she will have. So let's read Psalm 91 in its entirety, and then we will dive in. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what blessings there are for those who would look to you for refuge, for those who would turn to you for help, for those who would dwell with you. Oh, Lord God, you have done so much for us, and yet in this psalm you promise to be so much more for us, to do so much more for us. Oh Lord, let us be a people who would find their dwelling in you, who would find their refuge in you. Lord, teach us from this psalm how we should view you, turn to you, trust you, cast ourselves upon you, and give us great confidence and joy and peace as we do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 91 pretty clearly divides into three parts. And the, and the way to identify the divisions is through the pronouns. If you look, verse 1 announces sort of the central theme of the psalm. But then verse 2 is all filled with first-person pronouns. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalmist begins the psalm announcing his theme, and then his own personal response to that theme. But then starting in verse 3, the psalmist begins instructing someone else, and the pronouns shift to you. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wing you will find refuge. And that, that goes all the way down through verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder. 
and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So to recap, first two verses, the psalmist lays out his theme, his own personal response to that theme, and then he begins teaching some third party. They're all singular yous, this individual instruction. And then something amazing happens in verse 14. The Lord shows up and he begins talking as if to ratify or confirm or further elevate what the psalmist has said. The Lord begins to speak. The pronouns shift again now to first person, although it's no longer the psalmist speaking, but the Lord God himself. And in verses 14, 15, and 16, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So there's, there's the division of this psalm. In fact, if you want to fill in the blanks, the first section, celebrating trust in the Lord, my refuge. Focusing on the psalmist's personal response. Section 2, verses 3 to 13. Encouraging trust in the Lord, your refuge. The psalmist speaking to this third party, this, this student. And then in the final section, trustworthy promises from the Lord, our refuge. So that's how we're going to look at that in these three sections. So let's begin looking at the first two verses, celebrating trust in the Lord, my refuge. And so in verse 1, the psalmist lays out, as I've said, his theme. If you want a summary of what this psalm is about, here it is. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It is a declaration of security to the one who dwells with God. And of course, that phrase dwells, which is picked up twice in this psalm, once in verse 1 and then down in verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, is a major theme here, and it connects it to what came before. If you remember Psalm 90, if you look back to one chapter, verse 1, prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And, and of course, that was the answer, or the beginning of the answer for the Jews in exile. Whoever arranged the ordering of the books put them this way. Psalm 89 ends with the apparent failure of the Davidic monarchy, the removal of the people from the land. And, and the people are wondering, how can God be our God? How can we be faithful to him? How can he protect us? What are we to make of the fact that all of the promises he made seem to have failed? The Davidic dynasty is, is no longer ruling. There is, there is no king in that sense. There's no temple. There's no sacrificial system. There is no land. I mean, it seems like everything that the Lord promised to Abraham has been undone. And the psalmist says, wait a second. The, the, the chronicler says, wait a second, wasn't God our God before we took possession of the land? And he takes them to Moses, a man who never set foot in the promised land. And Moses announces that God indeed has been our dwelling place for all generations. It's not ultimately about the land. It's not ultimately about some Middle Eastern real estate. As important as that land is, God is our home. And then the rest of the psalm deals with the fact that as much of a blessing as that is, it entails certain problems. Living with God is no easy thing when you're mortal and sinful. And the psalm ends with Moses showing us how to respond, crying out to God to be taught, crying out to God for salvation and for mercy, to be satisfied by him. And then Psalm 91 picks this up. It's no longer showing us how to dwell with God in that sense, but rather showing us the benefits of dwelling with him. 
If you will learn the lesson of Psalm 90, then the blessings of Psalm 91 are yours. And so it just begins by announcing the blessings. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Groups of four show up here. In the first two verses, four different names are given to the Lord. He is the Most High, or El Elyon. And then he is the Almighty, which is El Shaddai. And then he is the Lord, or Yahweh. Remember when your Bible has Lord in all caps? That's the translation for God's special, personal name. And then my God, Elohim. And four analogies or metaphors are used to describe what, what protection the Lord gives. He is a shelter. We can abide in his shadow. He is a refuge and a fortress. And all those pictures have in common is protection. If you're out in the Middle East and you're in the scorching sun, you're looking for shelter. You're looking for a shadow to sit underneath. You're looking for something to protect you from the harsh elements. And of course, a fortress is so much stronger than that. And, and so the psalmist lays out his theme, this, this what we're going to look at here, about the shelter, the, the, the cool shadow, the fortress that our God is. And, and then he before going any further, has to announce his own trust in the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is not trying to teach a lesson he has not already learned. The, the bulk of this psalm will be him instructing, him encouraging, him exhorting his listener. But first, he models it. You think of Ezra, who studied God's law to do and to teach. And so the psalmist is, is not teaching anything he is not personally celebrating. He, he can't recount these themes without it bubbling over. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. You get the idea that the psalmist, whoever it is, is just passionate about trusting in the Lord. And it whets our appetite for what's to come. What is it that makes him so passionate? What is it that makes him so excited? Well, he's given us a taste in verse 1. But now as we turn to the second and largest section, we're going to see through the instruction why it is this psalmist is so excited. We, we now look to encouraging trust in the Lord, your refuge. The Lord, your refuge. And this, this section breaks up, I think, neatly into three parts, two parts. The first, verses three to eight, is versatile protection. We get a number of metaphors of the type of protection provided by the Lord. We're going to see versatile protection. Let's read verses 3 to 8. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And so the first picture we see is probably a surprising one. We've thought of the Lord in many ways as a strong tower of defense, as a mighty warrior. Here he's pictured as a mother hen. A mother hen protecting her young from the dangers that the wood affords, particularly from the fowler's snare and if you're, if you're a, a bird living in the wild, those are probably your greatest dangers. 
speaks of sudden, unexpected trouble, a trap, a type of thing that you don't see coming. And as a mother hen, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. This will also protect you from the deadly pestilence, the disease. The, these are the problems, that you, the dangers that we are unable to stop. You can try to avoid disease, but you really can't take it head on. If it overcomes your immune system, it overcomes your immune system. And yet here's this wonderfully intimate picture of the Lord, like a mother hen, taking us under pinions, by the way, is, a, is it just a word for the feathers, the outer feathers of the wing. You, and you've all seen the pictures. Some of you have maybe seen it up close. If you've been involved in 4-H or something, of, of, a, of a mother hen who's young or under her wing. And, and what's more safe, secure, and comfortable picture is there? And this is no new picture for the Lord, actually. Moses, in, a, in one of his songs in Deuteronomy 32, uses the same metaphor, Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 11, speaking of how the Lord redeemed Israel. He found him in the desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. It's a wonderful picture of who our God is for you. If, you're, if you are dwelling in him, then these are promises for those who are dwelling in the Lord. And if you're not sure, if you dwell in the Lord, well, bear with me. By the end of this psalm, we'll, we'll deal with that more explicitly. These aren't promises for just everybody. These are promises for the one who's made the Lord his or her dwelling. And the Lord guarded and cared for Israel. You think of Israel backed up against the Red Sea with an army coming on, and the Lord putting up a great pillar of fire and smoke to block Israel, the waters separating, the miraculous deliverance. Truly the Lord cared for his firstborn Israel. And Jesus, thousands of years later, looking on over Jerusalem, picks up the same metaphor in Matthew 23, 37. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This was God's heart for his people then. This is God's heart for his people now. The Lord is that tender towards us. He desires to be that protective for us. And contrasting this picture of intimacy and gentleness, you don't, you don't think of a hen as very powerful or strong. You get the second metaphor. He's a shield and a buckler. And here you have something sturdy, hard and strong to protect. To protect. This then leads us to our second point, that we will be fearless, having fearless security by day or night. And again, another example of fours shows up. Two nighttime terrors, two daytime terrors, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The picture here is night or day, whether it's disease, whether it's war, whether it's direct conflict, whatever it is, this one, this person, is not afraid. In other words, what, what the Lord is promising is, is what big pharmaceuticals try to deliver on, 
a cure for anxiety and fear. This person has real problems. I mean, these aren't imaginary problems. And, and Israel, the various wars that she had and with her enemies and captivity, these can be very real things. We think of them metaphorically, but these, these are real things. The terror of the night. Now, I know that there are people, probably even people here, who, because of anxiety, because of fear, have difficulty sleeping. The arrow that flies by day Dangers in the daytime, pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. And what you see is a picture of total universal fearlessness, total universal peace. This is, this is the cure. This is the real deal. You can face these things with peace. You will not fear. You will be at peace. They'll be around you. You will be at peace. This is the answer. That's good news. This is very good news. But he goes on. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And not only is this protection like a mother hen, like a shield and a buckler, not only does it provide fearless security by day or night, but also the picture here is of battle and judgment. Picture the, the confidence of a soldier going out to battle who knows they will not fall. 10,000 may fall at their right side, but they will be upheld. And again, this is not purely hyperbole. In Israel's history, something very similar happened when Sennacherib came and put his armies around Jerusalem in 2 Kings 19. One angel of the Lord came out and struck them all down, dead. Over 100,000 men. So when the Lord's on your side and the Lord is protecting you, you don't need to fear armies, you don't need to fear disease, you don't need to fear the terror of night. He defends his people. It reminds me of, uh, of the, the events surrounding the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Golden Gate Bridge, but it was built in the 1930s, and its construction was one of the safest constructions um, certainly up to that time. In the 1930s, a rule of thumb on high steel bridges being constructed was that you were expected to have one fatality of a worker for every million in cost. That was just sort of expected. The Golden Gate Bridge was well over 200 feet above the sea, and so people falling would likely die. But Chief Engineer Joseph Strauss made safety a high priority on the treacherous project. The Chief Engineer made the construction site, the first in America to require workers to wear hard hats, and he spent $130,000 on an innovative safety net that was suspended under the bridge. It was suspended along the entire length of the span from pylon to pylon. It was made from manila rope, about 3 eighths of an inch in diameter and 6 inches square mesh, and it extended 10 feet outside the trusses on both sides, and it gave the workers the confidence to work more quickly. The net saved the lives of 19 workers who called themselves the Halfway to Hell Club. I'm not sure what I think of the name, but... <laughs> but one of the other interesting things that happened was they found that with this net, that even though it cost $130,000, the workers were far more productive. And so it ended up actually saving money. Because you can imagine, if you're out on, on a steel beam, 200 feet above the water, and you realize if you slip, if you misstep, you're dead you're going to be moving, or I hope you're going to be moving, rather gingerly. 
Um, if it were me up there, I'd just be clinging to the beam, you know. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be moving at all. But I don't, I don't have a terribly good head for heights. But, but even if you did, you can imagine you'd be very cautious. Your movements would be slow. But, but once that net was there and once they had seen it save someone, and the workers, I hope, weren't acting flippantly and cavalierly, but they were much more mobile. They were getting much more work done. And so overall, the end result was... Actually, it saved money. But I just want you to think of the difference it makes working and doing labor and living, knowing there's a safety net versus there's just a chasm below you. And that's what this versatile protection of the Lord provides for us. We get to live a little differently. If all there is is time and chance, if we're just matter in motion, if what will be will be, then I'd be afraid to step outside. If I didn't know that there is a loving God and a plan governing my life, I'd be terrified. And so the psalmist is just giving picture after picture, metaphor after metaphor to encourage his listener, his student, to learn this lesson so he can live fearlessly as well. This is how you can face the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence, the destruction, the battle, and the judgment that will come upon the wicked. That's the other piece here. When, the, when you make the Lord your dwelling place, he is for you and not against you. See, the Lord has enemies. All of us were born his enemies. According to Ephesians, we were born children of wrath. And here, the, the one who has made the Lord his dwelling place not only is protected, but will witness the Lord's work upon his enemies. Which brings us now to the second um, reason to trust the Lord as our refuge. Not just versatile protection, but verses 9 to 13, miraculous protection. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, you will tread on the lion, the adder, the young lion, and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And so we move from simply general statements of protection to some more specifics. How the Lord, in fact, will protect his people. But again, notice he restates the condition. These, again, are not promises for everyone. These are not words of encouragement for everyone. There's a reason. There's a ground. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the Most High, who is my refuge. And by the way, notice how the psalmist still can't keep himself out of this. He's still bubbling over in confidence. So when he again speaks of the Lord, my refuge, he adds that in. This is instruction, but he still can't help but sort of add in this little bit. He's, he's my refuge too, there at the end of verse nine. But he repeats the instruction. And, and again, that's gotta be a form of encouragement. The person he's talking to is one who has looked to the Lord for refuge. If, if you're a Christian here today, there was a time in your life where you turned from your sin, you turned from your life you were living and your own wisdom and your own thoughts and you turned and you clung to Christ and you, you looked to the Lord for refuge. If that's something you've done, then this is encouraging us to continue to do it because after first turning to the Lord, we can start to walk out on our own and do our own thing and, and according to 1 John, we can stop walking in the light, walk in the darkness and then I don't think these promises apply of protection. So he's writing to someone who has made the Lord his dwelling place with the implicit exhortation to continue to do so. 
This is a reminder for us to continue to put our trust in the Lord and not our trust in our health insurance, not our trust in our bank accounts, not our trust in our own strength and wisdom, but in the Lord. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. He will command his angels. And now we get to the angelic protection envisioned. Now, the world of angels is a very um, confusing one. I tell my tough men classes that whenever we get to peek behind the curtain what angels are doing, I'm always surprised. I, I don't know how useful it is to, to speculate on what angels are up to, what they're doing, because every time I get to peek behind the curtain, they're not doing what I'd expect them to do. Whether it's Satan having a meeting with God in Job 1, whether it's the wrestling match that occurs at the end of Daniel, whether it's the four-faced creatures in Ezekiel, they're always surprising me. But one of the things we know they're doing is they're ministering servants to protect God's people. We already spoke of the angel that destroyed, one angel destroyed Sennacherib's army. We think of the angels the Lord has sent out to deliver his people, and here they're pictured in providing this protection. We don't see it at work. We don't know when it's happened. We have no idea what dangers, what problems, what difficulties have been avoided because the Lord has sent his angels, his ministering spirits, to protect us. We, we simply don't know. It's unseen. But we know that it is at work. This passage also is famously the only passage of the Bible ever that we know of that's put in the mouth and the words of the devil. In fact, if you turn to Matthew 6, let's take a look at that. This is that famous verse when Satan was tempting Jesus that he quoted. Now, the devil was attempting to turn this into a prosperity gospel message. He was, he, he was. That's exactly what he was doing. He was encouraging Jesus to be cavalier, to, to act upon this. He was encouraging Jesus to avoid suffering by claiming this promise. And as we move into the final section, I think we'll see this isn't a carte blanche promise against problems. But I want to take a look at the exchanges from the devil in the second temptation. First, of course, was to turn the stones into bread. The second, picking it up in verse 6, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest your foot strike against a stone. So there it is, the devil quoting scripture. Matthew, sorry, Matthew 4 Thank you, Zeb. I wrote it wrong. I, I, write, I said it wrong. I apologize. Matthew 4, verse 6. The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil puts him at the top of the pinnacle of the temple and says, Jump off! God's promised you, you can't perish. You won't get hurt. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus responds, quoting scripture as well, from Deuteronomy. And, and he understands that while these promises of protection are here, they're, they're not giving us grounds to live recklessly. Um, if, if you try quoting this, claiming this psalm, and there's a reason you don't wear your seatbelt, um, I don't know if that's going to work out so well for you. That's not what's going on here. 
What's interesting, however, though, if you jump down a few verses later, verse 11, what happened after the devil left him? Behold, angels came and ministered to him. It's ironic. The devil quotes this passage, twisting it, trying to make it say what it doesn't say. Jesus responds with faith and with scripture. And then we, the reader, get to see, oh no, that Psalm 91 absolutely does mean when it says, the Lord will, as he sees fit, as he knows our need, send his angels to minister. Here are angels ministering to the Lord himself. So we, the reader, if we're familiar with Psalm 91, we're gonna go, God's promises are true. I think it's also interesting that the, uh, the devil didn't continue quoting verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. He conveniently left that part out. Because, um, of course, going back to Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will do what to the serpent's head? He will crush it underfoot. Yeah, Satan's picky and picks and chooses which verses he likes to quote. And so we, the reader, again, know where that's headed. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's, that's its famous quotation. Of, of the devil trying to tempt Jesus. And, and we might be tempted reading this to think that this means there will be no harm, there will be no problems in our life, there will be no dilemmas, there will be no sickness, there will be no suffering. We might be tempted to think that. But as we move into our final section, we'll see that that is not exactly what this psalm promises. Let's move now into our third section. Trustworthy promises from the Lord, our refuge. Verses 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, up until this point, we've seen the condition for these promises stated twice the same way. Verse 1, he who dwells. In the shelter of the Most High. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Well, if you're wondering, what does it mean? What does it mean to dwell with the Most High? Well, we get some unpacking and expanding here in verse 14, because this time the condition said differently, isn't it? Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll protect him because he knows my name. And so what dwelling then means in this psalm, what dwelling means is loving and knowing the Lord. Loving and knowing the Lord. What's it mean to dwell in the Lord? To dwell with the Most High? It means to love Him, to hold fast to Him in love, and to know Him by name. And what's interesting here is we have other passages in the Bible, like, say, 1 John 4.19, that says, we loved him because he first loved us. But here is the Lord responding to our love. So there's this circle, this reciprocal circle of love going on. First, 1 John 4.19 and other passages tell us that he first loved us. While we were yet his enemies, he sent his son for us. He loved us. Then we respond in love. But when we respond in love, he responds to that love with his own protection. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. And we can enter into this sort of circle of, of love and trust with the Lord where he loves us and sends his son for us and sends his spirit to draw us. And then we respond by holding fast to him in love and he responds by protecting us. It's wonderful. 
it reminds us that with, with all the things we have to fear, we would do well to learn the lesson of, of Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, if, if, if you'll just choose the right one thing to fear, you don't have to worry about anything else. If you'll fear the Lord, you don't have to fear terror and arrows and pestilence and battles and fowler's snares. Or you can choose to not fear the Lord and live in fear of everything else. Those are your options. You can live in fear of everything else, or you can fear the Lord. You can fear the Lord. Loving him, holding fast to him, cleaving to him in love, and knowing him. Knowing his name, by the way, is, is more than simply being able to read a word off of a text. God's name is his character. It's his person. This, this isn't a magic formula. Like If you can somehow find the Lord's name, then you're all set. But rather, if you know who he is, and in knowing who he is, you love him and hold fast to him. This is the one to whom the Lord looks. The Lord first revealed his name fully or most um, exhaustively. I don't know if he could ever fully reveal it. In Exodus 34, when Moses cried out to the Lord to show him his glory. In Exodus 34, 5 to 7, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children, so the third and fourth generation. So that's, that's who God is. You wonder who the Lord is? The Lord, the Lord is a great God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and he's just. And there's a problem there. In fact, when I first read that, I said, what? On the one hand, the Lord forgives. He's abounding in mercy and steadfast love, and he forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin but who by no means clears the guilty. How does the Lord, on the one hand, forgive sin and iniquity? On the other hand, how does he not pardon the guilty? And this, this mystery becomes clear on the cross, right? Where he made him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake. God by no means let sin go. If you're here today and your hope is that God's a sweetheart, God's a real nice guy, and when you die, he'll realize that you did try your best and your hardest, which of course you didn't. But you know, if that's what you're clinging to, you're going to find the Lord by no means forgives the guilty. He by no means pardons the guilty. No, the only place where the Lord can do both, be just and justifier, be forgiving and just, is on the cross. And if you're finding your refuge there, then you have refuge. And if you're not, then you're going to get justice. You don't want justice. And so, again, we, as we understand who these promises are for, they're to the one who knows the Lord and loves what he knows. See, the, the devil knows the Lord and hates it. It's that combination of knowledge, knowing who God is, knowing the gospel, and responding to it in, in love that clings to it. You think of John 17, 1 to 3, when Jesus is praying, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given. And this is eternal life. And at that point, I'd encourage you, to, what's eternal life? That they may know the only true God 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's not knowing stuff about God. It's, it's knowing who he is rightly as, as revealed in the Bible and it's loving what you know. It's knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you and saying, I want that. I, I'm clinging to that in love. I'm putting my hope and my trust in that, not my good works, not my own wisdom. I, I'm finding my refuge there. That's the one to whom these promises are made. And notice what the Lord says he will do to that one. Eight things the Lord says he will do. I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him. And I will show him my salvation. I mean, what a wealth of promises. The Lord steps in and says to this one, the one who knows me, the one who loves me, I'm going to work for him or her. It's just a, a rich, rich list of blessings. But point B, I want you to notice something, and this sort of now deals with that potential sort of prosperity gospel. Does this psalm and all of its promises declare that we'll never suffer, we'll never be in trouble? No, the deliverance promised is in and not from trouble. Deliverance promised in and not from trouble. If you don't have trouble, you don't need to be delivered. If you don't have trouble, verse 15, you're not going to call out to him. You don't need rescuing. When he calls to me, verse 15, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Not I'll take him out of trouble. I will be with him in trouble. And so what we learn then is what this psalm promises is there will be times when the Lord will miraculously defend his people. We've, we've seen them in scripture. We have testimonies in this very church to miraculous works of God in people's lives. Arteries that move, right? And you can find the story on Talk to the Stringers later. Um, but just miraculous works of God. People who medical science said should have been dead years ago, living and praising God. There, there, there is that. Sometimes there's just the Lord being with you in trouble. After all, didn't Jesus perfectly fulfill these requirements and he went to the cross? Angels ministered to him, but he didn't ultimately get saved from the cross. In Luke 22, 41 to 43, when he was praying and sweating as if blood, he withdrew from his disciples and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. See, that's how God fulfilled Psalm 91 to Jesus' prayer. The cross didn't get removed, but he sent the angels to minister to him. And I just want to focus now on on the last two promises, all this deliverance promise. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And this is, of course, the greatest promise in the entire psalm. That word for long life... It means a full life, a complete life. Certainly, um, in the Old Testament especially, a longer life could be a sign of God's blessing. But again, the Son of God died at 33. Church history, the New Testament, is filled with godly men who clung to the Lord by faith, who were, were struck down in the prime of their life. But you just think of the quality of life, the difference there. A life filled in fear, a life filled in anxiety, a life filled with dread, a confident, bold life, getting work done and accomplished for the Lord. And ultimately, this fine word, showing him my salvation. And, and if you have the Lord's salvation, then everything else is gravy. I just want to encourage you with that. 
the one who looks to the Lord, who knows the Lord from his word, who knows who he is and, and loves what he sees and clings to the Lord in faith and trust. He is the one the Lord will fight for. He is the one the Lord will defend. He is the one who will answer. And he is the one who will, he will save. And I just want to go back to verse 2 and draw our attention to one last point here as I uh, call the ushers up to get ready for our special music. And that is this. If this is your condition, open your mouth and tell others about it. The psalmist here can't help but bubble over with his joy and exuberance at the Lord, his refuge, his Savior, my rock. He talks to God about it. I will say to the Lord, my refuge. Thank God for this. Praise him for this. Pray to him about this. And tell others. The psalmist writes this whole psalm to to pass this information down. If the Lord has been a Savior to you, if he's been a stronghold to you, if he has defended you, tell him about it. Tell us about it. Spread the praise and the fame of his name. Let's close in prayer and we'll have our offering. Lord God, we just praise you and thank you for these wonderful promises that you have made for us. We thank you for the protections that we don't even know about, Lord. The the steps that you have taken to guard and protect us that we're even unaware of. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to believe this when we're afraid, to trust in you, to look to you and nothing else for our shield and our shelter, Lord, to find our trust and our safety with you and not with the strength of man. And oh Lord God, if there's any here who who have not made you their refuge, if they have not turned to you, if they're living life in fear, fear of death, fear of calamity, oh Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them for who you are, that you would save them, that you would draw them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.